This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It is October 2017. 500 years ago this month, Martin Luther wrote 95 theses against the abuse of indulgences in the Western Church. We have traced the Reformation to this date for a long time, but as you and I know, the Reformation began before 1517, and it certainly did not end there. Decades later, Luther would say that in 1517, he was still, in the older translation, a right-roaring papist or an enthusiastic papist. He said that in the introduction to his Latin works in 1545. He would not come to understand salvation through faith alone, sola fide, until 1519, after he had lectured through Galatians and then Hebrews and then the Psalms again for a second time. And he didn't articulate the principle of sola scriptura until 1521. We remember and celebrate the Reformation not out of tribal loyalties, because these are our people, but because the Reformation brought us back to the sufficiency of God's Word for worship in the Christian life, and back to the gospel, and back to the sufficiency of Christ's person and work for our justification and for our salvation. As we noted last time, according to a recent survey, only about 30% of American Protestants are able to identify the Reformation principle of salvation through faith alone, sola gratia, and the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, that is, that the scriptures are the final and ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. About 30% of American Protestants surveyed believe in the Romanist doctrine of purgatory. So, we have reforming work to do, don't we? In this series, we're considering what happened to the Reformation. How did it come to be that only 30% of American evangelicals or American Protestants can tell you what the Reformation basics are? It's because the Reformation didn't get away scot-free. There were opponents to the Reformation. Last time we noted that one of the first and most powerful forces to oppose the Reformation was the Romanist Counter-Reformation. From the 1540s, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, were mounting a counter-insurgency to the Reformation across Europe as embarking on a global mission to spread Romanism across the world, at least to what was then known. Theologically, by the early 17th century, Rome was opposing the Gospel and the Protestant Reformation with with much more sophistication than she had in the 16th century. Robert Bellarmine became the focus of Protestant scholars as he raised questions about the legitimacy of the Protestant church by asking, for example, where was your church before Luther and Zwingli? The Reformed, of course, answered, right where it always was. It was to this question that the Westminster Divines were responding when they wrote chapter 25 of the Confession. In section 2, it says the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. This Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches 
which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. In those articles and in this chapter, the divines were explaining how it was that the church was sometimes more visible and sometimes less visible in the history of the church. Three decades later, the great Reformed theologian Francis Turretin would answer this question extensively in his Institutes of Electic Theology. One of his responses was to ask the Romanists where their communion was in the ancient church. After all, the ancient church, the patristic church, was not a Roman Catholic church. There were not seven sacraments in the second century. Indeed, there's not a shred of evidence for a papacy in the second century, let alone a Roman papacy. The Reformers believed that they were in the process of recovering the theology, piety, and practice of the apostolic church, the first century church, and the early post-apostolic church. They did not see themselves as starting a new church. Rather, they saw themselves as restoring the theology, piety, and practice instituted by Christ and received by the early post-apostolic church. Through the centuries from the end of the patristic period until the 16th century, so we're talking about a period of a thousand years, the Byzantine and medieval churches, despite their repeated claims to the contrary, departed from the teaching of the apostles in fundamental ways. Christ instituted, for example, only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. By the end of the 13th century, however, the Western Church had instituted five false sacraments in addition to the two that our Lord had instituted. Over the centuries, the Church had gradually replaced Jesus, the only mediator, with a series of mediators, finally concluding with the Blessed Virgin herself, despite, as we say in the Belgic Confession, her protests. During the Middle Ages, the Church gradually lost track of the biblical doctrine of salvation, that is, justification and sanctification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Reformed churches particularly sought to purify the worship of the churches from the many additions that had developed and to return to the worship instituted by Christ and practiced in the early church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The Reformation churches all rejected the medieval claims of the Bishop of Rome to be the universal head of the church. That said, sometimes American Christians particularly have been tempted by what we might call the donut view of church history. It's not as if we should see the medieval church in the West, the Byzantine church in the East, as the holes in the donut, as it were, to be followed by the Reformation in the West. So you have an apostolic church and an early church and then a big hole and then the Reformation. That's really not how church history works, and that's certainly not how the Reformers and their successors in the 17th century thought about the history of the church. The medieval church made the Reformation possible in certain and important ways. We learn vocabulary, categories, and even biblical interpretations from the medieval theologians. 
The Reformation didn't discard everything the medieval church had said or done, and they saw an organic relation between the medieval church and the Reformation. When we see, for example, Calvin critiquing the schoolmen, as he liked to call them, he's not attacking the medieval theologians, he's attacking the Roman theologians in Paris in the 16th century. In this regard, there's a big difference between the Reformers in the 16th century and the Revolutionaries. The Anabaptists, by contrast to the Protestant Reformers, were, in important ways, revolutionaries. In some ways, they were conservatives, too. They held on to the medieval view of salvation by grace and works, whereas the Protestants rejected that. But in other ways, they were revolutionaries. They wanted to make the Christian faith fundamentally an individual thing, a private thing, a matter in some ways of personal revelation. If we read the Reformers and if we read, for example, Francis Turretin's response to this question, where was your church before Luther and Zwingli, then we see them appealing to the example of Israel and Judah. They thought of the medieval church, both in the East and the West, the way we think of Israel and Judah, right? God's divided kingdom. And that is that God's people have always been a mixed assembly. And the story of the mission of the church is a complicated story. In many places, the faith was imposed as the Christian faith spread, for example, into the British Isles and into Europe. It was imposed from above rather than, as it were, taught from below and embraced. So, who knows really what the people on the ground, as they say, understood about the faith into which they had been baptized in the ninth century. In the same way, who knows what the farthest Israelite from Sinai understood about the faith. We trust that God has always had his elect in the midst of the visible church, whether under types and shadows or under what Luther called the Babylonian captivity in the Middle Ages. We trust that the elect are always brought to true faith by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through divinely ordained means, namely the preaching of the gospel. Even in the Mass, for the elect, there was enough gospel, and even in the sermons that were sometimes preached in the Middle Ages, there was enough gospel, even in the school lessons that were taught by the priests. There were little bits of gospel that people were able to hear and, by the grace of God, put together into some kind of rudimentary but true faith. So, even where the church's theology, piety, and practice has become, as it did in the Middle Ages, profoundly corrupt, there are still ministers faithfully mediating to the people enough of the gospel, and there are people believing enough of the gospel so that there still is something of a church in the midst of this confusion and even corruption. And we understand that even in those circumstances, those people were receiving Christ and his benefits by grace alone through faith alone, even though the church was gradually coming to teach something that contradicted that. And again, think of the example of Judah and Israel and how confused and how corrupt things were, particularly in Israel, but of course even in Judah as well. So the Reformers never thought that the true faith was sort of put in a jar or wrapped in oil skin and preserved for a thousand years between the early church and the Reformation. They understood that they were recipients of this long and messy history, and they saw themselves as attempting to restore the visible church to purity according to the Word of God, and restoring the gospel 
to the church and the ministry of the gospel to the church according to God's word. They understood that Christ had promised that he would always be with his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Those are gospel promises, and it was those promises that the Reformers sought to recover, and for which many of them gave their lives. The history is that God has always been with his church in the midst of a mixed, visible assembly. Well, another great challenge to the Reformation came from the followers of a fellow of whom you may never have heard, but who was nevertheless very important. His name was Faustus Sozini. He lived from 1539 to 1604. His Latin name, his surname, was Socinus, and his followers are known as Socinians. And Faustus Socinus was one of the founders of modern religious rationalism. And this was an influential movement in Europe and in the British Isles. Today, the Unitarian Church, that is, those churches that openly deny the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity and the substitutionary atonement, among other essential Christian doctrines, trace their roots to the Socinians. They grew in the Netherlands when many of the remonstrants, that is, the followers of Jacob Arminius, were accused of becoming Socinians. And it seems likely that at least some of them did become Socinians. The Unitarians trace their roots in part, back to the remonstrance. In 2009, the Unitarian Universalists of America wrote, quoting now, Arminian theology and the foundation of the remonstrant church are products of the Radical Reformation and demonstrate close relationships with the Socinian and anti-Trinitarian slash Unitarian proponents of the era. Early Unitarians in the United States and in England were strongly influenced by Arminian theological ideas as well. Again, that's a quotation from the Unitarian Universalists of America. The Socinians believed that the church could not ask anyone to believe anything that one could not fully comprehend. That's what I mean by rationalism. The human rational faculty, the intellectual faculty, is the boss. Whatever the mind cannot fully understand cannot be required as an article of faith. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. One of the leading Socinians of the 17th century was John Biddle. He lived from 1615 to 1662. Socinus and Biddle, his follower, professed to follow Scripture, but really they rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, 
the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the atonement, and other essential Christian doctrines, as I already mentioned. By the early 17th century, this movement, this Socinian movement, had developed into a coherent movement vigorously offering an alternative to Orthodox Christianity. In the preface to his 1654 Twofold Catechism, Biddle, the Socinian, argued, quoting now, I have here, according to the understanding I have gotten by continual meditation on the Word of God, compiled a scripture catechism, wherein I bring the reader to a sure and certain knowledge of the chiefest things pertaining both to belief and practice, whilst I myself assert nothing, as others have done before me, but only introduce the scripture faithfully uttering its own assertions, which all Christians confess to be of undoubted truth. What Biddle and Socinus and the other Socinians were proposing was something known as Biblicism. They were going to simply present the Bible and the Bible alone. So this is a very early version of no creed but Christ. And they were going to set about to read the Bible as if no one had ever read it before. What happened, however, was that the Socinians, and Biddle among them, ended up conflating their interpretation of Scripture with Scripture itself, and they replaced the historic ecumenical understanding and certainly the Reformed understanding of Scripture as it came to expression in the Westminster Standards and before that the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort with their own radical understanding of Scripture much of which was not actually new, but went back to the ancient Arian heresy, which said, for example, that Christ is not consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit. If you listen closely, you heard Biddle saying, in effect, I'm just following the Bible. He said that it was through his study of the Bible, apart from the creeds and apart from the wisdom of the church, that's how he's reading the Bible, that he's reading the Bible in isolation. And, surprise, surprise, he concluded that it teaches, for example, that Jesus was adopted by the Father. And, of course, he talks as if no one had ever taught adoptionism before. But that's a heresy that goes back possibly to the early 2nd century and certainly to the 3rd century, which was uniformly and universally rejected by the Christians. As I said a moment ago, Biddle also conflated, that is, he identified his own views with Scripture. Of course, this is one of the benefits of having a written confession, where the churches lay out, this is what we understand Scripture to teach, and we're going to write it down so that it's in public and everyone can see it. Without a confession, Biddle was able to say, well, of course, I'm just following the Bible, and the Bible doesn't teach the deity of Christ, it doesn't teach the Atonement, and it doesn't teach the Trinity. Now, there was a catechism of the Socinians, and if you're so minded, you can read it. It's called the Rakovian Catechism. And if you look for the Rakovian Catechism, you can find it online, you can find it in English, and you can see how slippery these Socinians were in 1604. Now, Biddle is writing about 50 years later. And though Biddle said that he was just following the Bible, in fact, according to the churches in all times and in all places, we say that he really wasn't following the Bible at all. As I say, this is not reading the Bible, this is Biblicism, reading the Bible as if no one has ever read it before. And Biblicists and rationalists like Socinus and Biddle, though they profess to follow Scripture, inevitably ended up wandering away from what Scripture actually says and what it actually teaches. 
Biddle's greatest opponent in England in this period was the great Reformed Congregationalist John Owen, who died in 1683. He was perhaps the greatest theologian of the 17th century in the British Isles and one of the greatest English theologians of all time. And though too young to sit at the Westminster Assembly, he did lead the Congregationalists in forming the Savoy Declaration in 1658. He was a great defender of the Protestant basics of salvation, sola gratia, sola fide, and the principle of sola scriptura, according to Scripture alone. And the Socinians, he understood, were launching a full-scale attack on Scripture at the very same time they were professing to follow Scripture. In his response to Biddle, Owen mocked him, and at one point he even asked whether Biddle had ever read John 1, 1 through 3, since Biddle was denying the deity of Christ. Well, this is in part because Biddle had a way of reading Scripture, and the word for that is hermeneutic. And the hermeneutic that Biddle used by isolating the text of Scripture from the historic church and by isolating various texts of Scripture from each other led him to deny basic Christian doctrines. And, of course, as I said earlier, remember, he was a rationalist. He was only prepared to believe what he could understand comprehensively. Well, by the time you adopt that principle, you are bound to lose basic Christianity. After all, what Christian can understand comprehensively? Now, I didn't say believe. I didn't say understand insofar as it's revealed in Scripture, but understand comprehensively the mystery of two natures and one person, or one God and three persons, or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. These are mysteries in the Christian faith. There are true things that we can say about them, which we do say and should say, and that's one of the reasons why we have the ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, and the Reformed Confessions, as I say, the Westminster Standards and the Belgic, the Heidelberg, and the Canons of Dort. If we look at how Biddle actually interpreted Holy Scripture when he's actually trying to explain these isolated passages that he's picked, we see that his explanation of various passages is actually not very compelling at all. And this is because of his rationalism, things that he knows to be true even before he gets to Scripture. He knows how the story, as it were, has to come out. He knows what verses can say and what they can't say not because he's following the text, but because he knows ahead of time. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So he's professing the superiority of Scripture, but he's actually assuming the superiority of his own intellect, his own rational faculty, his own mind. He knows what reasonable people can be expected to believe— And, of course, as I said, the mystery of the Incarnation and the mystery of the Trinity and the Atonement and all of those things, those basic Christian truths, well, they don't pass the test, do they? So Owen's response is interesting on a number of levels. For one, he didn't accept Biddle's protests, that he was just reading Scripture impartially. Listen to what Owen said. I insist somewhat the more on these things, that men may judge the better— whether, in all probability, Mr. Biddle, in his, quote, impartial search into the Scripture, close quote, did not use the help of some of them that went before him in the discovery of the same things which he boasts himself to have found out. In other words, 
Listen, buddy, you're not being honest. The truth is, you are a Socinian, and you're following the Socinian Creed and the Socinian Catechism. So you're not just reading the Bible, you're reading the Bible in a tradition, in a heretical tradition. What Owen understood and what all Christians need to understand always is that biblical interpreters like Socinus and Biddle are not actually impartial. They have and had an agenda. It's just that they don't admit it. Now, we Christians have an agenda, and we admit it. We read God's Word with the church that Jesus established. Now, the church works for Scripture. The church doesn't form Scripture. It's not in charge of Scripture. That's the great mistake that Rome made. So, the agenda has not always been easy, but our Lord Jesus did not promise anything about the Christian life being easy. Well, let's continue. Owen's analysis of Biddle is instructive, and so is his remedy. This is what Owen says. For the removal of all this from prejudicing the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, there is an abundant sufficiency arising from the consideration of this one argument. If Jesus Christ be called the Son of God antecedently to his incarnation, mission, resurrection, and exaltation, then there is a reason and cause of that appellation before and above all these considerations. And it cannot be on any of these accounts that he is called the Son of God, but that he is so called antecedently to all these. I shall afterward abundantly manifest yet a little farther process in this business as to the particulars intimated may not be unreasonable. In other words, he's saying Jesus is God the Son before his incarnation, before his mission being sent into the world. And so the adoptionist case doesn't work. Jesus doesn't merely become the Son, right? That's the adoptionist view. That's the view that Biddle was teaching. He is the Son become incarnate, taking on human nature. And the crux of Owen's case against Biddle lies in a doctrine that the ancient church regarded as essential, and that is the eternal generation of the Son. Again, quoting Owen, And this is the first reason which our catechist, Biddle, hath taken from his masters to communicate to his scholars, his students, why Jesus Christ is called the Son of God. This he and they insist on exclusively to his eternal sonship, or being the Son of God in respect to his eternal generation of the substance of his Father. In other words, the answer to the Socinians and the answer to Biddle is ancient, biblical, ecumenical Christianity. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These are things that Biddle couldn't say because he knew a priori that they weren't true or that they couldn't be true. Well, the Socinian movement was part of a larger rationalist trend that began already to appear in the 1530s as rationalists long before Biddle began to raise doubts about the doctrine of the Trinity. By the end of the 17th century, however, the rationalists had gained a great deal of ground in the universities, and at the same time, the Orthodox were losing ground. By the middle of the 18th century, the rationalists were more or less in charge, and the Orthodox were in a lot of trouble. 
By the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century, some of them are raising questions about the historicity of Jesus, and from there, it wouldn't be long until the reigning theology in Europe was deism, the idea that God winds up the universe like a clockmaker, but he's not actively involved, and he's not knowable, and there's no sin and no salvation, and the Bible began to be treated like a collection of myths. The Orthodox Reformed theologians and churches would spend the 19th and much of the 20th century fighting this rationalism as it came to expression in what was then called liberalism or modernism. The founder of Westminster Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, was one of the great opponents of modernism, and he wrote a wonderful book called Christianity and Liberalism, where he laid out the difference between historic biblical Christianity and the rationalism of the modernists who brought the Christian faith into doubt and even into disrepute. So when we seek to answer the question, what happened to the Reformation, we've given two answers. There are other movements that we could think about and examine. Had we time, we could look at the pietists and their turn to the desire for a certain quality of religious experience over against truth and the historic confessions of the Christian church. But we have been able to look at two movements, Romanism and Rationalism, that help us to understand why, when we talk to other Christians, even Protestant Christians, about things that are regarded as basic in the Reformed confessions, we get a blank stare or a funny look. Why it is that 30% of American Protestants say they believe in the medieval Roman doctrine of purgatory, and why only 30% of American Protestants, according to the recent study, are able to explain justification and salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But 2017, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, is a wonderful time to renew our understanding of these great basics and to rededicate ourselves to not only remembering them, but confessing them and teaching them and transmitting them to our children in the hope that 500 years from now, our great-great-great-great-grandchildren will still know and confess to their children the great truths of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, the atonement of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the Christian life and Christian worship conducted according to Scripture alone. Well, with this episode, we bring to a close our mini-series, What Happened to the Reformation. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned as we begin thinking about our 2018 faculty conference, The Bible, His Stories, Your Life, scheduled for January 12 and 13, 2018, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, right here in Escondido. Register today. You can find everything you want at wscal.edu. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.